This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Witam serdecznie jego ekscelencję biskupa Andrzejskiego Janusza Stetnowskiego. It's October 2018, and in Poland, on a building site north of Warsaw, a crowd of dignitaries and journalists have gathered under a marquee. They're marking the start of work on a new coal-fired power plant. Ostrołęka C was to be one of the most efficient and flexible coal power plants in Poland. But the project quickly came to a grinding halt. That's because two months before work on the Ostrołęka C started, an environmental organisation called Client Earth paid 20 euros for 10 shares in Enea, the Polish power company building the plant. Hi, I'm Sophie Marginak, and I'm a lawyer with Client Earth. As shareholders, Client Earth then filed a lawsuit against Enea. We argued that the plant would become a stranded asset once electricity generation decarbonized, making it an indefensible financial risk. In July 2019, a Polish judge ruled in their favour, construction was abandoned, and there may never be another coal-fired plant built in Poland ever again. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And I'm Katrine Brahick, The Economist's environment editor, filling in for Sumeya Kings. And in this week's episode, why lawsuits aimed at greenhouse gas emissions are on the rise. First, I'll take you to Peru, where a potentially seismic lawsuit against Germany's biggest electricity company is playing out. Humbling. I think that's the first word that comes to mind. Humbling. You can just see the force that would come with the water, and it makes me afraid. Then we'll hear more from client Earth's Sophie Marginak. You know, we've seen generally a failure of the political process, and therefore many climate activists are turning to the courts to look for climate justice. And we'll ask whether all of this litigation is good for the planet and not just good for lawyers' bottom lines. Hey, Mike, and welcome, Kat. Hey, Alice. And yeah, welcome to Money Talks, Kat. Thanks, both. It's good to be making my debut on Money Talks and filling in for Samaya, who probably deserves a break after a pretty crazy month in Britain. She definitely does. But also, we are very excited to have you with us, Kat, since we've spoken a lot this year about environmental activism and investing. We've spoken about shareholders using proxy resolutions to push climate issues. We've talked about the rise of ESG and the pushback against how effective that is. 
But what you've been looking into is possibly the most aggressive tactic yet, suing for action. Yeah, that's right. So I've been covering climate change for many years and been watching this sort of rise in the tide of climate litigation. That case that you mentioned earlier, the court case against Enea, is definitely one of the most interesting ones. But it's over the last decade or so, I'd say that I've seen a real uptake in these sorts of cases where we've got NGOs or individuals suing fossil fuel companies for the role that they've played in increasing carbon emissions around the world. And in the mid-2000s, there were really very few of these cases. And then in 2015, they really took off. And why was that? It's got to do in part with the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. The deal in Paris committed governments to keeping the increase in average global temperatures since pre-industrial times to well below 2 degrees C. And climate science allows the greenhouse gas emissions compatible with that goal to be quantified. So those two things together basically gave creative lawyers a lot to work with. Um, just to give you a sense of the numbers here, the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law in New York and the Grantham Research Institute here in London collate data on climate cases. So these are cases that basically mention climate change in some measure. And they found that of the nearly 2,000 cases they have in their database, more than half were filed post-Paris. And have those cases been successful? Yeah, so we've seen some really interesting successes, actually, both in terms of lawsuits that have been brought against governments, making them increase the uh, scale of their commitment to decarbonize, and also some really interesting cases brought against companies. So the most um, sort of high profile one of these, I'd say, is a case that was brought against Shell, where an NGO argued that it wasn't doing enough to tackle its own greenhouse gas emissions. And the court found in favor and effectively ordered Shell to increase its decarbonization targets. Now, that's a case that is being appealed at the minute. But in the meantime, Shell actually has to abide by that ruling. Yeah, that's a really interesting ruling. And we saw in the wake of that that Shell abandoned its dual headquarters structure and it's now just solely based in London. But Kat, you've gone to Peru to look at a different, still pending case, right? Yes, that's right. I went earlier this year to find out about one of the most interesting climate litigation cases out there. It's a real David and Goliath story that pits a local farmer and mountain guide called Saul Luciano Luluya against Germany's largest power company, RWE. My first time in the mountain, I went when I was 10 years old. And then after that, let's say three or five years later, things were changing. Saul lives in the town of Juarez, which is downstream from the glacial lake Palcacocha, and he's claiming that his house, and in fact much of the town, is at an imminent risk of flooding from that lake because of global warming. I could see how the glacier would retreat more and more every year. That's just the experience that I lived since I was a child. It was just something I kept inside of me. How unfortunate and how sad that all of this was happening. 
and at school and on the news, they'd say climate change because of a lot of pollution was going to make the tropical glaciers of Peru disappear. So that was frightening and worrisome, especially because I was living that reality. So in 2015, he teamed up with a German environmental NGO called German Watch to sue RWE for their part in this town's predicament. What part is that? You know, what does a German power company have to do with this Peruvian lake? Well, essentially what happened is that back in 2014, researchers calculated that RWE put nearly 7 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases into the Earth's atmosphere between 1854 and 2010. And they calculated that that accounts for around 0.47% of cumulative historical global emissions. And so Saul, with the support from German Watch, are now trying to get RWE to pay 0.47% of the costs of what it would take to secure the lake so that it doesn't overflow and flood Saul's farm and his house as the planet warms. The thing that is interesting about this case is that it was initially thrown out by a German court in 2016, but in a surprise appeal ruling in November 2017, the Higher Regional Court of Hamm in Germany decided that it merited to go one step further. And now it's 2022. What did you find on your trip? Why did you go? It was really quite extraordinary. I was there to coincide with a larger team of judges from Peru and Germany NGOs, lawyers from RWE, Saul's lawyers, all of these people were there to assess the risk that the lake poses to Saul's house. If you'll bear with me, I'm now going to take you on that journey with me. It takes two hours to drive from the mountain town of Juarez up to Lake Palcacocha that sits 4,500 metres high up in Peru's Cordillera Blanca mountain range. About an hour into the journey, you get to a locked gate that marks the entrance to a national park. Past the gate, you drive up through a glacier valley and then a huge moraine, a mass of rocks and sediment that were carried down and deposited by a glacier, looms into view. We're driving above what is a classic glacier valley with a flat bottom, lots of rocky debris, steep sides. Um, And what we're driving up at the minute uh, is a very steep hill. It's in fact a natural moraine Above the moraine, we can see this incredibly impressive mountainous peak covered in what looks like meringue is, in fact, of course, snow, ice and the glacier. What we can't see at the minute is the lake, Lake Palcacocha, which presumably is hidden behind all of this debris. When we reach the water, it's that quintessential turquoise of a glacier lake. Uh, Humbling. I think that's the first word that comes to mind, humbling. You can just see the force that would come with the water, and it makes me afraid. I met Dr. Rodever Hayen, who represents Sao Luciano de Luya, when we got to the lake. I feel like I'm trying to take on a lot of things here to try to actually prevent the risk that would come from an outburst here. And, at least according to Dr. Verheyen and German Watch, the risk is substantial. 
This lake has grown uh, substantially um, over the past uh, few years and has reached a very dangerous level according to uh, flood risk studies that have been done here. Noah Walker Crawford works for German Watch. He was part of the team that went up to the lake to assess the risk that it poses to Seoul's farm. He told me that the lake has essentially swelled as the glaciers above it have melted due to climate change. The danger is that a large block of ice could fall into the lake and cause a wave and an outburst flood. Or not just a block of ice, but in fact the mountain below the ice, the mountain rock, is becoming less stable as a result of permafrost degradation because of global warming. And so the biggest risk is if a piece of the mountain itself uh, falls off with the glacier on it into the lake uh, with an enormous amount of energy, that could provoke a large uh, flood wave which would go over the dam at the end of this lake and uh, cause a flood going all the way down to the city of Waras and destroying everything in its path. And it's happened before. In 1941, a flood submerged large parts of Juarez when Lake Palcacocha burst through the moraine. Today, the lake holds 34 times more water than it did back then. While this body of water seems to hang above the town like a sword of Damocles, engineering solutions do exist. Current temporary measures include two modest dams and large PVC pipes to drain the lake. Ten large black PVC pipes siphon the water out of Lake Palcacocha and down into the valley underneath where it ends up joining up with the river that flows towards Juarez. And the purpose of these pipes is effectively to allow local authorities to regulate the level of water in Lake Palcacocha so that they can keep it at a relatively low level, thus limiting the risk of a disastrous flood. But Noah tells me that they're hoping to convince the German court of the need for a more ambitious plan, one that they want RWE to help pay for. Even if the water level is reduced by a few meters, there's still a very high risk of flooding if there's a big enough avalanche. And this is not something that the people below in the valley want to live with. Uh, for that reason, to control the risk of flooding more sustainably, the authorities are planning a large infrastructure project to build a new dam and drainage system at the lake. So the idea would be, with this is to reduce the water volume uh, more substantially by several million cubic meters to a level that's deemed safe by the authorities. Saul Luciano Luloya's lawsuit cites a 2014 study by Richard Heed from the Climate Accountability Institute, which found that the activities of 90 large industrial emitters collectively accounted for 63% of the carbon dioxide and methane emitted between 1854 and 2010. This share is further broken down to the company level which is how you get to the 0.47% that his lawsuit is asking RWE to pay for. It's not a lot of money. Here's Rhoda again. Now, just so I understand, the, the money that's being claimed, which is, I think, on the order of 17,000 euros. This is a very common misunderstanding. Saul is not actually claiming money for himself to be actually paid out into his hand. What is being claimed is that if a project of protection measures is being carried out, then RWE has to pay part of it. And that is the condition. 
And the, the actual application in German law is also phrased as such, because the court is only asked to state that RWE is obliged to pay part of the costs if such costs arise, which means if the protection measures are actually carried out. Clearly the point is not necessarily the money. Would you agree? The point is the money, of course, because what we're asking here is essentially one step of the way. We have here the first major emitter, which is RWE, in front of us. If we win this case, we will, of course, make the same claim towards other main, main emitters in such way as to at least cover substantial parts of the costs of this project. RWE wouldn't put anyone up for an interview. But they told me in a statement that they don't dispute that global warming is happening and that greenhouse gas emissions are responsible. Rather, they say that due to a lack of linear causation, the specific risk alleged by Mr. Luluya could not be attributed specifically to RWE's emissions. So we are in Saul's house, which is a two-story house Looks like it's still semi in construction. I ended my trip back at Seoul's house in Juarez. Made of concrete and brick and painted white, it looks just like any other on the street. This case is likely to continue into 2023, eight years from when he first filed it, much longer than Seoul anticipated. But he is prepared to go the distance. Are you prepared to continue the fight? Mientras que tú so long as you and your family and your people are being affected, I think we have to defend ourselves, survive, or do what's needed in adaptation, or anything else. Because imagine if there are no more glaciers and there's not enough water. I think we are responsible for what is going to happen in the future, and we also have the mission of survival. So there's so much in there that is super interesting. In particular, I found it incredible that the cost to RWE to help shore up this lake, if that's a pun that works, was so small. You know, surely the legal bills associated with this are far more than 17,000 euros. So obviously this case is, you know, not just about securing that tiny sum of money. Yes, that's definitely true. And in fact, RWE is also paying out sums that are at least equal or possibly greater than that in securing research to, to support their case. So it's very clear that the money here is not the biggest issue. And in fact, while I was there, one thing that really struck me was that the regional government, which ultimately would be responsible for building this plan, basically has the money. It, it's well within their budgets. And the thing that's held it up, really, more than anything else, is corruption, lack of organization, and all those sort of usual sins. But of course, this is one of those cases that's all about setting a precedent. And that's something that Christoph Bals, the policy director of German Watch, told me explicitly while I was there. We have um, participated in all UN climate conferences from COP1 until today. I personally have participated in all of them. And we see how slow the progress is happening there. So we hope that 
if we get a precedence case here that we can drive the, the political debate on the one hand side to be faster on climate to um, to reduce emissions especially for the big companies he said he's hopeful that it would legally establish the concept of what he calls the global neighborhood already in the oral hearing the judge has said yes he accepts this so we are quite hopeful that this will be part of the final result so that a neighbor is not only the next door neighbor but in a context of climate change and also some other risks that it's a worldwide neighborship where you can affect people with what you do and then you have the obligation to stop harming them to, to support them and if something happened to compensate them and how likely is it do you think that this will actually set that precedent Honestly, I think it's really hard to say at this point. The case isn't expected to wrap up until the earliest in 2023. Um, but I think what's really interesting about it is, as we mentioned earlier, the fact that it was initially thrown out and then deemed admissible by a judge who wanted local investigations into the case. So two days After that recording that you just heard, a big milestone happened in the case where all of these people went up to the lake together. I'm currently in the midst of a convoy of roughly 15 4x4 cars. Behind me are the RWE lawyers with their uh, experts in flood risk. Up ahead is Saul Luciano Liluya with his lawyers, his experts. Further ahead still are the German judges with their own court-appointed experts, as well as the Peruvian judges and all of the local authorities. And today is the day that they're all together going up to Lake Palcacocha to take stock of the situation in person. I was the only journalist to join the convoy, but I wasn't allowed to record interviews with anyone, and I had to keep my distance and observe. The teams took soil samples and they flew drones over the lake to take its measurements. Someone drew measuring tape at one point across the top of the dams and they also spoke with local authorities who were in charge of monitoring conditions at the lake around the clock. Simply the fact that these investigations are taking place is seen as a really significant step because this kind of a case of one individual suing a company in a completely different country for damages locally has never been seen before. So no matter what happens afterwards, these initial investigations are really interesting. Well, I guess we should plan on potentially doing another podcast on this in 2023 then. But before we hear your conversation with Client Earth, it's that time in the podcast when... We ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. Kat, what have you been interested in in the paper this past week? So I was really interested in a piece that ran in the America section, which looked at a new project that uh, President Biden has launched. He calls it the Change in Natural Asset Wealth Project. And it's basically an attempt to quantify the uh, changes in the cost of depleting America's um, natural assets, so things like clean air and rich soil. And this is something that is really, really quite unique, really. So it's, I think it's a project to keep an eye on. Yes, that project and that piece both sound super interesting. If listeners want to read that or any of the other great stuff we have in the paper this week, they can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. 
And if you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. You can sign up to all of our great newsletters, including Money Talks and the bottom line at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Now, Kat, you also spoke with Sophie Marjanak of Client Earth in your reporting for this piece. Why was Client Earth interesting to you? So Client Earth is interesting to me because it's an NGO that is behind a lot of these what I call creative climate litigation cases. They're really thinking about different ways of using the law to get more action on climate change. It's a field known as strategic litigation, and it's definitely growing. Sophie, hello. Thank you for joining us today. It's lovely to be here. So we've seen in recent years a real explosion in the number of cases brought against companies for reasons relating to climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about this trend? What do you think has been driving that in the last sort of five to 10 years? There has been an explosion, as you say, in climate change litigation all over the world. There was a wave of unsuccessful cases in the 2000s, including one brought by a village in Alaska, village of Kivalina and ExxonMobil. And since then, I mean, 20 years later, we're now, I think, uh, in the second or third wave of climate change litigation. Many of those cases have been brought against corporate entities under a range of legal theories, including uh, in relation to their emissions of greenhouse gases, their historical emissions, as well as uh, breaches of corporate and consumer law. And and why do you think that sort of growth in number of cases is happening? Have these cases been successful, which is giving people reason to bring more, or is there something else going on? There have been some successes, uh, and I think generally that climate activists and those who seek greater action on climate change, as well as uh, public authorities, particularly in the US, who are seeing uh, the reality of climate change and climate damages you know, worsening with extreme weather events, they're realising that somebody or uh, someone will have to pick up the bill for climate damage. Particularly in the US, we're seeing cities like New York uh, and states like California actually litigating to seek to recover some of their costs. So that's one driver. Also, you know, we've seen generally a failure of the political process and therefore many climate activists are turning to the courts to look for climate justice. So before we come back to these global trends, I wanted to talk to you about the case we've just heard about, um, the case of Saul Luciano Luloya versus RWE in Germany. 
it's had a lot of attention. Why is that? And what is, from your sort of expert perspective, what is the significance of this particular case? Well, the RWE case is unique. It is uh, one of the only cases where a claimant or a victim of climate change and, and of climate impacts from the global south, Peru, is litigating against a large company in, in Europe. And so it really brings the global impacts of climate change before the courts in Germany for the first time. So a key counterargument that companies frequently raise to cases like this, where it's individual companies that are being brought to court, is that the courts and specifically corporate litigation are not the right place and not the right tool to decide on climate policy, that this is the kind of thing that really should be left to governments and that piecemeal litigation won't result in globally or even nationally coherent action to limit emissions. What's your response to that argument? Well, I think that we need to understand what the law can do and what the law can't do. It certainly can't uh, create a holistic system of international policy or step in to do the job of governments, but that's not what litigation does. Litigation is about legal liability and it's about legal responsibility based on existing or developing legal principles. So the courts absolutely have a role in outlining the individual responsibility or contribution to responsibility of uh, corporations that have, through their emissions for many years, contributed to the issue. And that's the same for any area. I mean, uh, tort litigation has often stepped in you know, at times to not, not fill a regulatory gap, but to contribute to assessing and determining liability on an issue. For example, um, litigation was necessary in the asbestos issue, also other toxic torts um, in the US, such as, as lead paint and, of course, tobacco being the classic example. So there is an interaction between the courts and the policy process, um, but litigation doesn't attempt to fill that policymaking gap and it simply can't do that. That's not its role and that judges are absolutely clear and, and often very cautious about interfering in policymaking, the policymaking role of elected democratic governments. But what we're talking about here is compliance with the law, legal obligations and duties, and that's separate to um, a, a legislative response to climate change. And what do you see as their odds of winning? Well, I mean, all of this litigation is really groundbreaking. There are principles coming before courts that have never been decided before, such as you mentioned the international dimension. Can a, a resident of Peru litigate in a German court against a German company for harm that is related to you know, a physical process that occurs internationally within, in the global atmosphere? So these are really crucially significant principles of law. However, the law and and particularly, you know, private common law, uh, private and common law, as I mentioned, they are capable of change. It, the law is not necessarily static. It moves and changes with the times and it needs to keep up with these global problems. So in some ways, the law can be very helpful because it's, it is flexible and it is able fundamentally to uh, and, and its purpose is to achieve justice 
And so it's incredibly interesting in terms of prospects. I think it's really hard to say, but we have many, many cases quite similarly um, being brought in the US against a range of companies. And I think we'll see more of those cases in more and more jurisdictions. So it's clear that at some point, one of these cases is is likely to succeed. And the courts will, in the, in the normal way, start to make new law on this topic. And then that body of law builds up and builds up until there are a set of common principles. That's fascinating. Um, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a field that we'll be watching very, very closely in future. Thank you so much. So, Kat, we normally end with our final thoughts on the issue and what we make of it. And one thing that struck me is you talked about the sort of new cutting edge climate science that made it possible to attribute, say, 0.47 percentage points of historic cumulative global emissions to this one German power company. I wondered sort of how much faith we should have in those figures and how also you say, okay, well, it's the power company that's responsible and not sort of the power company's end users. And so is it appropriate to sue RWE or should it be all of the German businesses and households that use the power that they produced? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and I think goes to the heart of why people are so keen to watch this court case as it progresses. The numbers themselves are pretty solid. They're actually part of a database that's now updated every year. So it's not the lawyers that have come up with these numbers. It's independent research groups. I think the bigger question of whether or not it's fair, in a sense, to attribute the blame for this to RWE and not, say, the customers that were buying its electricity or, indeed, as I put it to Saul when I was speaking to him, you know, I share a part of the responsibility for that as well, as does he, right? Because obviously the emissions that are responsible for the melt of the glacier above Juarez come from a huge variety of sources. And it's actually one of the issues that I have with this type of climate litigation generally. I think you rapidly end up in a situation where you've got billions of claimants and billions of defendants. And so I think in the long run, it's not sustainable. It's not intellectually consistent. You can't carry this logic all the way through. But in the meantime, if you're an NGO or if you're a citizen that is concerned about climate change, then it's certainly an avenue that you can try. It's definitely a theory that is worth testing. And I think that the legal scholarship that's going into this, in a sense, is what's more precedent setting. So I think the arguments and the logic that the lawyers will have worked out on both sides is going to be influential for other cases down the line. Yeah, I think the problems here share something in common with a lot of issues in terms of the distribution of blame or responsibility for sort of economic phenomenon where there isn't a single obvious person to blame. It's a tragedy of the commons situation, really, which is the sort of concept that economists have been discussing for centuries. And I think, of course, you're right, 
cat. This isn't a method that's sustainable and, and you know, going to be able to be applied everywhere. It's one of the reasons that The Economist and a lot of other people advocate for things like carbon taxes, precisely because whatever the difficulties of that are, it's just so much more administratively simple than chasing everyone's individual emissions down in the courts. And if we're going to have this sort of global neighborhood, you need some sort of global architecture to make it work. Yes, this global neighborhood idea, you know, in some ways it suggests that we're all responsible and all victims. You know, you have to be responsible for all of the emissions that you contribute or put out into the world. But then you're also affected by the emissions that everyone all over the globe puts out as well. And so it is difficult to know where to draw those lines. And I imagine that is a debate that we'll have to keep having, especially if people keep bringing these lawsuits And on that note, I think it's probably time that we pivot to our stats of the week. Kat, as you're new to this, you can have the dubious honour of going first. So uh, what is your stat of the week? My stat was 16%, which is the increase in European deaths in July compared to the norm for 2016 to 2019 as a result of the remarkable heat waves that Europe experienced this year. And that is the equivalent of 53,000 more people who died relative to the norm. Gosh, that is so grim. You've done an excellent job of cosplaying Sumaya Keynes because she always comes along with her miserable statistics. And if anything, you have outdone her. So excellent work. My stat of the week is 4%, which is the share of US treasuries held by China. And that is down from 14% 10 years ago. And around 10 years ago, everyone was getting very excited about the idea that, that China's sort of large holdings of treasuries could be a sort of potential financial weapon against the US. And everyone was very concerned about what might happen if China sold off all those treasuries. And it actually has been selling them off for 10 years. And at the same time, the issuance of treasuries has shot up. So they now only hold 4% of US treasuries down from 14%. And that doesn't seem like much of a financial weapon anymore. Yeah, that's always been a funny statistic to people who uh, who focus a lot on China in the sense that, you know, China's holdings of treasuries were there to protect its currency. And the idea of them selling them all at once would, would rather defeat the point of that. My figure this week is one that I think we've used before. It is the Drury World Container Index. I'm using it again because it has changed a lot. It is now That is the price of an average 40-foot container. That is now down more than 50% in the last year. So you remember hearing all about the sort of massive shortages, the huge costs that people were paying to get access to containers, port shipping around the world being extremely expensive in 2021. That has really collapsed quite a long way in the last year. And with that, our thanks this week to Sophie Marjanak. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us. Please send your statistics just to me at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. I'm Katrine Brahick, in for Sumeya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist.
Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.